Welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. We are recording this episode 55 years after Bloody Sunday, which is part of the history of the struggle for equality and voting rights in our country. We're going to be talking about voting rights and we're going to update you on some other big legal developments. With that, welcome to the show's co-host and producer, Joe Armstrong. Hello, Jessica. Hope you're doing well today. Thank you for having me here. As always, as a reminder to everyone, Bloody Sunday was March 7th, 1965, nearly a century after the end of the Civil War. A little background on that. The passage of the landmark Civil Rights Act of 1964 on July 2nd, 1964, hadn't changed much in terms of African-American voting rights in some parts of the South. And in the late winter and early spring of 1965, there were a series of civil rights marches in Alabama where the segregationist governor, George Wallace, had said in his 1963 inauguration speech, segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. Words that haunt us even today. So the marches were to take place on the 54-mile highway from Selma, Alabama, to the Capitol in Montgomery. And they were organized by nonviolent activists who were demonstrating in order to achieve the constitutional right to vote for African Americans. The March 7th incident became known as Bloody Sunday because as the marchers reached the county line, at the Edmund Pettus Bridge over the Alabama River in Selma, Alabama. They were assaulted by Alabama state troopers and Ku Klux Klan members. Among the more than 600 marchers was 25-year-old John Lewis, who had his skull fractured in the incident and eventually went on to serve in the House of Representatives for 33 years. Lewis had scars on his head from that Bloody Sunday incident for the rest of his life. Now, that footage of the violence of Bloody Sunday brought a significant amount of national attention to the civil rights movement and helped propel that forward. And thank you for that, Joe. And here we are again, once again, talking about the need for voting rights protection in our country in 2021. We're recording this episode against the backdrop of dozens of states who are proposing restrictive laws that would make it more difficult to vote, more difficult to register, more difficult to make your voice heard on election days. And it is against that backdrop that the House of Representatives, for the second time now, has passed a sweeping piece of electoral and political forum legislation. It's called H.R. 1. That's because it's the Democrats' first legislative priority. And it's the biggest political reform package that our country has seen in well over a decade, maybe even since 1974, 1975, when we enacted the um, campaign finance reforms. And so let's focus on the voting rights portions of H.R. 1. First, it would do things like implement automatic voter registration. It would make it easier to vote early and vote by mail. The bill would also require states to establish independent redistricting commissions to draw congressional district lines. This would essentially eliminate partisan gerrymandering, at least on the federal level, and ensure that people's voting power isn't diluted just by virtue of which congressional district that they live in. The bill would also attempt to strengthen election security, something that we've talked about a lot, Joe, something that's vitally important, something that we tend to care a lot about right on the eve of an election day and maybe for about three hours after that, but really deserves a lot more attention. So all of these provisions are meant to help protect the right to vote and bolster our valid voter participation. Okay, Jessica, is there anything else in H.R. 1 other than voting rights and election security? There's got to be more there, right? 
Yes, actually, there's a lot more. And the bill is also about trying to reduce the influence of money in politics by strengthening disclosure or transparency laws and creating an alternative program of public campaign financing. This means that people could run for federal office, raise some private money, but also get help with public funds to assist them in running their campaigns. Again, the idea is to try and reduce the influence of money in politics We've talked about this in the past, but our current campaign finance system essentially creates a system where uh, money plays a really, really big role. This is not news to anybody, but money helps determine who can run, who can run effectively, who gets their voice out. It also determines the idea that a lot of voters feel like politics is a place for moneyed interests. A lot of voters feel like politics is a place where things at least appear to be corrupt. And so H.R. 1, in part, tries to reduce that connection between money and elections, at least a little bit, as much as is currently allowed under our current Supreme Court jurisprudence. H.R. 1 is also about trying to strengthen ethics laws. It would prohibit representatives from serving on boards of for-profit companies, and it creates a mandatory code of conduct for Supreme Court justices. Oh, the Supreme Court, Jessica, we spend a lot of time talking about the Supreme Court on this podcast. So now, would this change be a good or a bad thing when it comes to the Supreme Court? You know, I'm going to say something that I think is probably unpopular with a lot of our listeners, which is I'm not all for this change. And look, I really, really care about judicial ethics. And I think it's vitally important not only that judges and justices act a certain way, but that we have faith that they act a certain way. But problems arise when you have a mandatory code of conduct on a group, the Supreme Court, who themselves are supposed to be the final judges. So how are we supposed to police this ethics code and make sure that they really adhere to it? Are we supposed to have an uber Supreme Court that looks after our current justices just on the issue of this code of conduct? Are justices supposed to police themselves? Now, I can hear some of you saying, well, senators police themselves, but senators, one, can be expelled by their colleagues, and two, they have a very different working relationship. And federal judges can only be removed by the impeachment process. And let's remember, we're basically talking about a nine-person law firm. Now, the most powerful and important law firm in the country, but they do have to retain some collegiality, or we hope they do. Uh, in order to do their job. So in the abstract, absolutely, of course, Supreme Court justices should adhere to certain ethics. And there is a voluntary code that covers them now. But do we want to make that mandatory? I, I don't know. We could quibble about that in the end. And this is the punchline, of course, Joe. I don't think we have to have that argument because I don't think that this is going to pass. Right. Moving on, perhaps we need a Supreme Court ombudsman, Jessica. So now tell me, is this a slam dunk? At this particular moment, Democrats control the House, the Senate and the Oval Office, the executive branch. What chance does this bill have of becoming a law? Well, as I kind of alluded to a moment ago, I don't think much of one. And that's because of the filibuster. So millions of people voted for president, for members of the House of Representatives and for senators. But the filibuster in the Senate means that most legislation can only succeed if Democrats in the Senate all stay together, all 50 Democrats in the Senate, 
and they get 10 Republican members to join. That's because use of the filibuster means 60 votes are needed to pass any legislation for any actions other than lower judicial court nominations and some budgetary legislation. So again, millions of people vote. And when we use the filibuster, and it basically means you need 60 senators to move forward with any action, that have profound implications. At this point, recording this episode in March 2021, I think the biggest decision that Democrats will make before the midterms again, in 2022, is whether or not to end the filibuster. It isn't any single piece of legislation. It's what are you going to do with the filibuster? Now, some Democrats might be reticent about ending the filibuster for a whole host of issues. Number one might be if and when Democrats become the minority in the Senate, this is one of the only tools in the toolbox that they could have to retain some power. So, Look for filibuster reform to continue to be a huge topic of conversation over the next weeks and likely months. As a reminder, we have a special episode um, all about the history of the filibuster that you can find. Now, Jessica, we started this episode today by talking about voting rights, and there was some news today out of the state of Georgia on that very front. So yesterday, the Georgia Senate passed a bill to roll back what is called no-excuse absentee voting, as well as requiring more voter identification obstacles. Now, you might be wondering, what is no-excuse absentee voting? Now, this is legislation that would make absentee voting restricted to people who have a reason to cast an absentee ballot. And in Georgia, that means anyone who is 65 or older has a physical disability, or would be away from their voting district on election day. Now, Georgians would also need to show a driver's license number, state ID number, or some other kind of identification. I'm not sure that their old blockbuster card would qualify. We will leave that to the Georgians. Now, after passing the Georgia Senate on a party line 29 to 20 vote, the bill moves to the Georgia House of Representatives. So we'll have to keep an eye on that. Now, Republicans are making their case for more voting hurdles based on Donald Trump's big lie that there was massive voter fraud in the 2020 election. Democrats say that this is yet another attempt by Republicans to make it harder for African-Americans in Georgia to vote. Now, Jessica, what are your thoughts on this? You know, my thoughts are, I can't believe it's 2021. We have plenty of evidence that voter fraud on any sort of sizable scale does not exist. And I am so upset that we're talking about voting laws still through a partisan lens. I'm so distressed that this is still a Republican versus Democrat issue. And look, I mean, I I just think we have to honestly say this is happening because Georgia flipped from red to blue. Democrats elected two senators. And I think that Republicans feel the way to help retain power is to implement these laws. And I wish this wasn't, it didn't sound like a partisan statement because voting law should really be a question divorced from partisan ideology. Voting law should be about how to best ensure that people who want to validly cast a ballot can do so. So I I hope that this is not the beginning of a trend, although we certainly see a pattern on the national level. Um, and I know that we want to talk a little bit, speaking of patterns, about what happened in Iowa today as well. Right, exactly. Not to be outdone by Georgia. In Iowa yesterday, Governor Kim Reynolds signed a Republican-sponsored bill that cuts the number of days Iowans can vote early from 29 days to 20 days. Now, they had bumped it down from 40 
in a previous session. Now, other new restrictions include a requirement that most mailed ballots must be received by Election Day, slashing an hour off the end of voting days from 9 p.m. to 8 p.m., and making absentee ballot request forms unable to be mailed by election officials unless specifically requested by voters. Reynolds' statements to the press after signing the bill were filled with words like transparency, accountability, and integrity. And the irony here, Jessica, is that I, Republicans themselves, said that new restrictions were needed to combat voter fraud, even while they said that in Iowa there is no history of election irregularities, up to and including record turnout in the 2020 with nary a problem. Now, Jessica, it seems to me, looking at Republican motives for making it harder for people to vote means it's time for another reference to The Wire, one of my favorite things on the podcast here. During a drug war in season three, one of the lieutenants in a drug organization is talking with the kingpin who goes by the name of Avon Barksdale. Mr. Barksdale is balking about the reasons for the drug war being a lie, and his lieutenant, Slim Charles, says, if it's a lie, then we fight on that lie. Now, this seems to me to be the tack that a majority of Republicans are taking when it comes to Donald Trump's big lie about the 2020 election. If it's a lie, then we fight on that lie. And here's to you, Slim Charles. I... (laughs) You're allowed one wire reference an episode. That was it. It made sense. So we'll keep it in. You know, I mean, same comment that I had above, which is that if there was evidence of voter fraud, then absolutely, we have to create a more restrictive voting laws. We have to ensure that we stop that fraud. And the reason that I'm confident that this widespread voting fraud doesn't exist is one, I trust this social science. I trust the political science. I trust all of the studies. Two, if we look at the post-election litigation that happened in the wake of the 2020 election, we had judges who were state court judges, who were federal judges, who were Republicans, who were Democrats, who said in a unanimous voice, if there's voter fraud, show me the evidence. And there wasn't that case. And it's not like a bunch of state court judges and federal judges, again, across party lines, came together and said, you know what we want to do? We want to pretend that widespread voting fraud doesn't exist. So this is just another way of saying these ways that we try and determine the outcome of the winner of elections before we even know who's running or what they stand for is one of the really dispiriting things. And I really, really hope that we don't always talk about this on the podcast because I hope it becomes, we have a situation where, for instance, we have a law like HR1, which, you know, I don't love all of HR1, but we do need a floor of protections, I think, on the federal level. It's up to the states to determine the time, place, and manner of elections. And I increasingly think it's up to the federal government, again, to set that safety level, that floor of protection. And... Now, we have one more big topic, one more big piece of legal news, uh, unfortunately, still connected to the 2020 election. Indeed, you do, Jessica. So before we go, as of late last week, there is now a second suit by a member of Congress against the former president based on the insurrection in the Capitol on the 6th of January. Can you tell me a little bit more about this one? I can. So 
Shameless plug for some listeners. I have an op-ed out about this, which I'll probably uh, link to in the notes to the podcast. So this suit by Eric Swalwell is similar to the one that was filed last month by the NAACP and joined by Representative Benny Thompson. The suit was against Trump and Giuliani for conspiring with the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers for violating civil rights by blocking the counting of Electoral College votes. This suit, the Swalwell case, contains more than 40 pages of, frankly, really damning factual allegations against Trump. The complaint also includes allegations against, again, Rudy Giuliani, but this time adding Donald Trump's son, Donald Trump Jr., and GOP representative Mo Brooks. A lot of other arguments here are similar to what we heard during the impeachment trial. But one of the big differences from what we heard during the impeachment trial or from the NAACP case is that more than half of the nine causes of action here that Swalwell sues under relate to negligence. And this matters because under a negligence standard, Swalwell will have to prove something less than that the defendants intended for the capital riots to occur. So I know this sounds kind of in the weeds, but negligence is the lowest standard when it comes to what does your state of mind have to be in order to impose liability. So I frankly think that this is a really smart move to add negligence-based claims because you don't have to get in the president's head, the former president's head, and show intent. So Jessica, under a lesser standard, what are Trump's defenses here? Are they similar to the other case? Yeah, absolutely similar to the other cases. I think in both cases, he's going to have two big defenses. And the first will be freedom of speech. And he'll say, look, I'm protected from liability because all of the things I said uh, were just impassioned political speeches, and you don't get to punish people for that. Now, we do know that the First Amendment, while we have very broad protections, uh, those protections aren't unlimited. We do punish, for instance, obscenity. We do punish incitement. So I'm not sure how that defense will play out, but I know that that will likely be one of the ones that he asserts. The other defense is likely to be that he's protected from liability because he took all of these actions while he was the president. Now, that protects him if the actions he took fall within his official duties and responsibilities. But frankly, after reading the complaint, I think there's a fairly decent case here that a lot of the things he did and said don't fall within his official duties as president of the United States. So these will be two big cases to watch. And we're also looking to see whether or not um, others will file additional suits. I mean, there's no reason that we stop at two and there could be additional theories that come forward. So now, Jessica, both these cases so far were brought by lawmakers on the Democratic side of the aisle. No surprises there. But didn't Republican Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell say that he was voting to acquit Trump because impeachment wasn't the proper way to hold him accountable? Right. So Republican Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell wrote in the Wall Street Journal Quote, there is no question former President Trump bears moral responsibility. His supporters stormed the Capitol because of the unhinged falsehoods he shouted into the world's largest megaphone. Later on the Senate floor, he said, quote, President Trump is still liable for everything he did while he was in office as an ordinary citizen, which is another way of saying, look, I'm voting to acquit because this isn't the right venue, but 
in a different venue, he can be held accountable. What's that different venue? A courtroom. Um, but we don't see bipartisan support for these cases. And again, this comes back to the topic we were talking about for voting rights. I, I fear that so many questions are still just viewed through a partisan lens. And that is, on that terrifically depressing note, I think that's probably where I leave that rundown of the Swalwell case. You know, everybody's question, what's going to happen in the case? I really don't know. It's certainly not a frivolous case. Um, this is, you know, wrap, partly wrapped up with our feelings that a lot of these cases we've watched and nothing really happened. So we'll see if things change Um now that President Trump is former President Trump and is a private citizen and doesn't enjoy the same levels of protection. But in, an, in answer to the question, I'm not a, answering the question. I don't know exactly what's going to happen. We'll see. At this point, we'll just see if the cases can proceed at all. Joe, what's your take on this? You know, Jessica, I'm admittedly ambivalent on these suits. It's a lot of sturm and drang, like you said before. But if we don't have accountability, then what's to prevent things like the Capitol insurrection or far, far worse from happening again? But, but, but the more attention you give to a bully, the more attention they want. Trump is done. He's been voted out. He's in Florida, which is almost far enough away from Washington. Part of me would love nothing more than to never hear from or about him ever again. I doubt that'll happen. And whether or not we do, Jessica, I look forward to discussing all all of it with you. I do too. On that note, listeners, thank you. We've gotten some more reviews on Apple Podcasts. I've gotten some more emails from you and tweets. We love hearing from you 99.9% of the time. You can find Joe across the socials at In-Depth Day. You can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica, the podcast on Twitter at Past Judgment Pod. We wish everybody a great week and we will talk to you soon. Thank you.